Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hello, my fellow suffering beings. Virtue is a tricky topic. It is often sold to us by religious leaders thundering judgmentally and sometimes hypocritically down to us from the mountaintop. But from the Buddhist perspective, there is actually a deeply self-interested case for ethics and virtue. And as you will hear, this approach is quite flexible and open to personal interpretation. The Buddhists are not trying to get you to follow a bunch of very specific rules. They're trying to get you to do no harm because that will make you happy. This is part two of our series on a venerable Buddhist list called the Noble Eightfold Path. You can think of this list as a kind of recipe of eight practices that will get you toward enlightenment. To put it in a way that will appeal to skeptics, people who aren't sure that enlightenment is a thing, You could just think about this list as a bunch of ways to help you do life better. The three middle items on the list all have to do with ethical conduct. They are right speech, right action, and right livelihood. As you will hear, our guest is going to talk about this stuff in super practical and non-dogmatic, non-preachy ways. Our guest is Eugene Cash. He's been a Buddhist teacher since 1990. He's the founding teacher of San Francisco Insight and a senior teacher on the Spirit Rock Teacher Council. His teaching is influenced by many streams of Buddhism, Theravada, Zen, and Tibetan. In this conversation, we talked about how to make terms such as virtue and ethics more attractive to skeptics, Eugene's case that being ethical is in your self-interest, the idea that kindness can actually be hard-nosed and tough, how the Buddha could be hard on people when it was helpful for those people, uh, how to use right speech skillfully, why he says that practicing right action all day long is his idea of fun, and the technical versus the holistic understanding of right livelihood. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher, and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating, and it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15-20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. 
As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Eugene Cash, welcome to the show. Oh, hey, Dan. Good to meet you. Good to be here. Likewise. Glad you're here. This interview is part of a series we're doing on the Noble Eightfold Path. And you're going to talk about three of the items on the list of eight that are often described as kind of the ethical piece. So we're going to talk about words such as virtue and ethics today. And I have the feeling that for many people, these words can be provocative because... So many of us have been on the receiving end of moralistic, moralizing lectures from religious hypocrites. So how can we make these terms, terms such as virtue and ethics, attractive to skeptics? I think it's helpful to remember that the words have a meaning that may not be related to any hypocriticism. How's that for a good word? (laughs) And really what I mean by that, like the word virtue is a beautiful word and understanding in Buddhism because it's really about harmony and being virtuous with what's true, being in alignment with the truth. And again, with ethics, I feel very similar that ethics are about creating harmony with oneself and others in a way that works and in a way that's real. It's not about doing the right thing. It's about doing what's needed and what's true in the lived moment. It's not just a set in stone ethics. You know, most of the time, it's really ethical to say the truth. But sometimes it's not ethical to actually say what's true. It's not the right time or the right place. I'm hearing, and this may be, maybe I'm reading too much into your utterances here, but I'm hearing possibly implied in what you said that one way to make this attractive to people, the otherwise fraught notions such as virtue and ethics, is to point out that there's a no small amount of self-interest in this. Totally. You're very good. I'll give you an A on that. (laughs) No, really, because it is, it's about what's true here and what really matters to us. What do we care about? And especially if you're studying Buddhism or studying meditation, or you're trying to learn what it means to wake up, that's all about your self-interest. And the beauty of it, of course, is self-interest doesn't stop with oneself. Self-interest includes everyone's interest because we're all here together, like it or not. I was just thinking about this today. There are so many bugs in the software of Homo sapiens, but there's this incredibly elegant feature, which is that enlightened self-interest, doing what is in your best interest in the most elevated sense of the term self-interest, is a win-win proposition. Doing good for others is good for you. Totally. I mean, it's just, how couldn't it be good for you? That's the other way is to look at it from the other side. It's not good for you to be kind to somebody if the kindness makes them feel better so they're easier to be around, they're nicer to relate to, they do their work better, whatever it might be, or they take care of themselves and their family better. How can't that be good for all of us? This may be redundant, but I think one objection people have among perhaps many to the idea of ethics or virtues, such as compassion, is that, well, we live in a deeply unethical, unvirtuous world. So if I try to be ethical and virtuous or compassionate, I'm at a disadvantage against all of the bad actors out there. I'm a softie. I would say the opposite is true that the advantage is you're landing in the truth and there's nothing stronger than the truth. In some places, they say the truth will set you free, which is not a Buddhist saying, but it's really a powerful saying. And so there's a difference between landing in the strength, power of truth and being a softy. And the people who need to act 
unvirtuously, who need to act unkindly, meanly, greedily, it's because they're totally soft inside. They don't have real strength. And so they're using fake strength and fake power. I think a lot of people have in their lives people who they perceive to be bad actors, a mendacious, malicious boss, a brother-in-law who's really obnoxious and annoying. And many of us feel, uh, this is to be repetitive deliberately, that we're, we've got an arm tied behind our back if we're going to respond to these people with nothing but kindness. Kindness can be fierce. Kindness can be direct. It's much more unkind not to be real with people who are suffering from their delusion or their ignorance or their greed. And then the question is how to skillfully be kind, not just be nice. And so I often work with people who ask these kind of questions because this is a really normal, common question that everybody has. How do I deal with my mother-in-law? How do I deal with this person in work? And, you know, my first question is always, what do you want and how can you say it in a way where maybe they can hear it? Just to see what's possible from the direct interaction instead of just feeling like, okay, I'm going to collapse now because I can't deal with this guy. Why can't you deal with this man or woman or person? And then what happens if you become direct with them in a way that maybe they could hear it. And I say maybe because, again, I don't have a set in stone answer, but it's part of the creativity that comes from mindfulness. If we're really in the moment, more will come to us than just our usual ideas. There's more intelligence here than we know in each of us. And that's partly what Dharma practice begins to reveal to us. There's a great story that Sharon Salzberg, the legendary meditation teacher, I've heard her tell this story when she was studying in India and somebody asked, what do you do if somebody tries to steal your bag? And the answer was, you compassionately give them a whack with your umbrella. Oh, yeah, you compassionately smack them with your umbrella and give them all the love in your heart as you hit them. And it is, that's what's needed. And that's something about really waking up. Waking up is not about being good. It's about being real. It's about seeing what's true. You know, the Buddha was very tough. If you read the old scriptures, he was very tough sometimes. He's laughing at people or he's saying they're idiots, these people. And then, of course, that doesn't get well publicized when you're doing an opening talk for people. That's not the part of Buddhism that gets put to the foreground. But in fact, he could be very hard on people when it was helpful for them. Yes, there are discourses where he rails against somebody and says, you ignorant man, and then holds forth. Yeah, totally. He's tough. But the tough guy doesn't get publicized so much. No, I think Buddhism could use some remarketing in some key ways. Okay, so speaking of Buddhism, so you're going to peel off three of the items on the list of the Noble Eightfold Path. So before we get into the individual items, anything you want to say to sort of set the stage? Uh, just the Eightfold Path is a beautiful understanding about what does it mean to practice and to awaken and to live our awakening, that you don't leave awakening on the cushion. It's not just that, oh, we wake up and everything's fine because everything is not fine. But what does it mean to actually live it is what the three pieces you're talking about are about, right? It's about right speech, right action, right livelihood. Most people are always talking. I don't mean always every moment, but I mean, most people like to talk to other people. Most people act in many different ways. We're always doing something. And then we all need to have some money. We all need to, you know, do something so we can survive. And so those three components are so normal and just woven into our lives the term that's used is right speech, right action, right livelihood. And I like the word right. Most people don't these days. It's because of right and wrong. And so people use wise or kind or whatever they're using. But I'm an old school guy. 
And so I really like the word right, because if you look up right in the dictionary, at some point, one of the meanings of right means to come into accord with the truth. That's what right means. And that's what right speech is about. That's what right action about. That's what right livelihood is about, is to come into accord with the truth. And of course, for your listeners who may not know, one of the ways Dharma is translated as truth. And so coming into accord with the Dharma, with the truth, with the way things are, is freeing. And then living it is really the cutting edge for most of us. It is for me. I've done a lot of meditation in my life, and it's good, and it's been great. But it's different to be in the world and to function and to talk to my wife when I'm angry or to be really clear about what's appropriate action and what's not appropriate action in any situation. And even right livelihood, I know a lot about right livelihood. And technically, I know a lot about wrong livelihood, too, because I wasn't always a Buddhist. And I did some things that in Buddhism would probably be considered wrong livelihood. They, they weren't that bad, though. I was going to say, were you a gun runner? <laughs> no, 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 I wasn't. I wasn't that bad. <laughs> but I, I, uh, it was back in a different world when things like marijuana were illegal, and I, I was involved in those worlds. And uh, yeah, it was a very interesting world to be in in the old days. Right, but right livelihood doesn't necessarily mean you have to hew strictly to the U.S. legal code, you know, because I could see where selling marijuana to somebody would be very much right livelihood. I agree. I always thought it was. But you're doing a lot of things that put oneself and others in jeopardy legally. And so that's not so skillful. And I thank God or anybody, Buddha, that I never got arrested for some of the things I was involved in. Sounds like you would have been fun to hang out with back in the day. (laughs) (laughs) I knew how to have fun. (laughs) (laughs) We hit right livelihood, but that's actually the third on the list. Let's start with right speech. How do we understand right speech? What does that even mean? Well, right speech is really very basic speech about being truthful, not lying, or not being harsh to people, not gossiping, things like that. That's what right speech technically means. And it's very important to remember right speech is not mindful speech. Mindful speech is another component about speech that's really under the greater right speech uh, umbrella, but it's different because mindful speech is in the first foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of the body, mindful of the posture, mindful of the breath, mindful of the elements of the body, mindful of the activities of the body, and then being mindful of speaking and listening. And so what does it mean to do that? What it means is to feel, sense, be aware of your body right now as we're speaking and listening, you and I. And so there's a kind of different orientation to reality when we sense and are aware of our body as we're speaking and listening. And of course, being aware of the other person and their body right? Because they're also embodied at that time. And of course, you can hear a lot if you watch their body, which you know about as, you know, interviewing people. You can get so many different messages by what their body's doing, because body is part of speech. And that's mindful speech. And then right speech is just about being honest and direct and not divisive are the kind of terms that are used for right speech. And it's very simple. It's not a big deal or anything. It's just what your mother would say. Say what's true. Don't lie. Don't attack people with your speech. That's very simple. And then the depth starts to happen as we're living our lives. And what does it mean to speak in alignment with the truth, rightly in alignment with the truth in this situation? 
with my daughter, with my wife, with my friends, with my colleagues, with my neighbors, with people I don't like. What does it mean to speak without lying by being truthful, not divisive, not abusive, and not being dishonest at all? To be clear, right speech doesn't mean just blurting out what happens to be true anytime you want. I've heard it sometimes described as say that which is true at the right time. Yes, say what is true at the right time when it's appropriate, because sometimes it's not appropriate. Even with people you love, like my daughter, who's a total grown-up person these days, so I don't have to be dad very much with her, but sometimes she needs dad, and sometimes she needs for dad to be quiet about what she's talking about and just listen more deeply and really get what is she really saying and what might be helpful. Because of course, I'm a teacher. I'm happy to tell everybody everything I know all the time. It's part of my job. But really the right part of my job, both as a teacher and as a father, is not saying everything all the time just because I know it's true. You know, on one hand, sometimes I'm wrong about what's true, but really the other part is sometimes that's not what's skillful, that's not what's helpful, that's not what's actually kind. I've said this before on the show, but it bears repeating. We're all talking all the time to other people. We're typing to other people if we're not talking. And at the very least, we're talking to ourselves. And yet nobody ever really teaches us how to do this with any level of skill. And so we're often putting our foot in our mouths or alienating people or abusing ourselves or others. I mean, we're just fucking this up on the regular. I've said that a bunch on the show. And then as I was preparing to interview you, I saw that you quoted some great teacher who said something to the effect of, we're all enlightened until we open our mouth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great, great quote. I'm trying to remember who said it. I think it was Suzuki Roshi who said that. And it's true. It's a practice, right, speech. That's the other part of the Eightfold Path. It's not like you just learn the different links of the path and that's it. Okay, right speech, right action, right livelihood. It's a living practice, right speech right action. These are alive in the moment. And that's what's beautiful about Dharma. It's about the reality of now. And even now you're doing your job. You want to do it right. You want to do it so that it's powerful or it's good or it's helpful. And it's in alignment with the truth. Because if it's not, it isn't good. If we wanted to make a practice in real life, as you're talking about, you know, in the moment of right speech, Any guidance for how to operationalize this in our lives as an experiment over the next couple of days? Well, you could do it a lot of different ways. Just be aware of what you want to say before you say it. Don't just say it. Be aware of it first and then think, do I want to say it or don't? And you have a choice. And that's a certain kind of freedom. And the freedom to say what you want to say or the freedom to not say what you want to say. They're both part of freedom. And so just do it for one day. That's a great way to practice. And then, of course, another one is, you know, don't talk about anybody who's not in the room for a day. Really, I learned this from Joseph Goldstein. And he said that. He said he did that. He couldn't believe how little he had to say. (laughs) (laughs) And so there's so many different ways. And this is part of the creativity of the Dharma. Think for yourself. What would be an interesting practice for me to do for one day with right speech? What if I didn't start any conversation for one day unless I really needed to? Like there was something really important I had. But otherwise, I just waited till the conversation came to me for one day. And I'm just making this up as we're talking, right? I hadn't thought of that before. But what I'm saying is think for yourself. What would you do, whoever you are out there in whatever land? You know, what would be interesting for you? Or even thinking, oh, how could I say something kind in each conversation I have for one day and see what happens? Because that's a different way of orienting our speech instead of having no guidance, no training, no education about it. Let's move on because we've got three aspects of the Noble Eightfold Path we want to cover. Let's move on to right action. You have said that of the three, this is the key. Yes. So what is right action and why is it the key? 
It's a key because we're acting all the time, right? Even right now, this is action. We're acting. And I don't mean acting like performing. I mean, we're involved in a functional part of reality. And we're always functioning in different ways. And, you know, even if you sit down and meditate, you're functioning then. That's an action. And so that's what I mean by it's key that if we can begin to find some harmony, you know, if we can come in alignment with the truth, which I like to push that part of right, that is freeing. Because then we're practicing 24-7. And that's my kind of fun. It's like, oh yeah, how can I practice 24-7 now in this situation? You know, with Dan talking on microphones and stuff or being recorded. Or it's when I go to CrossFit. I had a great workout at CrossFit today, this morning. That's all practice. I'm acting, I'm functioning, I'm relating to people, to the trainers and stuff, and to the other people there. And there's a kind of harmony that I love. And that's part of right action. And of course, technically, you know, the basics are about not taking life and not stealing and not acting in ways that harm people sexually. You know, those are the basics of right action. And so they're considered ethical, as you said, and they're moral, but also they protect us. As I think everybody knows, if you're going around killing and stealing, it's hard to be peaceful inside of yourself. It's not kind to yourself. Disregarding for a moment the unkindness to the outer world, to the inner world, there's no peace you can never really relax. And so there's a kind of inner harmony that we seek. And I believe that draws people to meditation. And so it's woven into everything we do, action. This goes back to self-interest. You know, so many people come to meditation or medication or therapy or whatever it is because they want some calm. They want to relax. They want a break from their anxiety or depression or whatever it is. And it's not the dessert we ordered, but the truth is that actually, if you want calm, one huge component of it is don't be an asshole. <laughs> you know, if I had a bell here, I'd ring it. Ding. <laughs> no, totally. Don't be an asshole. That's like a no-brainer to me. But it's not a no-brainer to everybody because they've been hurt or harmed or confused or traumatized, you know, whatever it might be. And so they think, oh, that's what you do to survive. You know, and maybe it helps you get through something, but it's long-term, it's so good to act from your heart, really, from the goodness of the human heart, which, you know, doesn't get enough publicity, Dan. Here's one of my big complaints. I love to travel. I haven't traveled much during COVID at all. I've done a teeny bit of travel to see my daughter, but I've done travel in my life. And I'm always amazed at how kind people are when you're in another world. You know, I've been to all over Europe and Asia and how kind people are when you don't know where you're going, when you're lost. And people are so kind and so helpful just naturally. This is not practice or anything. This is just natural good-heartedness for most people. And that gets almost no publicity. What gets publicity are all the wars and all the hatred and all the racism and all the sexism and all the isms and all the other stuff that people do that is mishugana. Do you know the word mishugana? Yes. Well, I'm, I'm half Jewish, so I, I know a little Yiddish, but troublemaking, yes. Yes, Meshugana also means crazy making. Yeah, that's how I know it. And that's, you know, it's almost a poly word, Meshugana. It's so <laughs> it's so accurate. But it really it's it's really important to see the good heartedness of people, which is here for most people in the world, actually. And that just is a different view than just seeing the dukkha or the difficulty that people cause. Coming up, Eugene Cash talks about why he says that practicing right action all day long is his idea of fun and the technical versus the holistic understanding of right livelihood.
The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns, quince.com slash happier. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You talked about the goodness of the human heart and that can to, you know, the jaded types like me who come out of an industry. Uh, I used to be a journalist and, you know, one of our little catchphrases is we don't report on the plane that lands safely. So to people who come from my kind of background and, I'm, you know, I don't want to blame it all in journalism. I think I was hardwired for some measure of hard bittenness. So when I hear goodness of the human heart, I, you know, it provokes a bit of a gag reflex. But I, I do think in looking at my notes on you in prepping for this interview, that I think what you're pointing at is a word that came up repeatedly in my research on you, which is realness. Yeah, that's part of the goodness of the heart. I'm, I'm going to push on this goodness of the heart thing. Could I ask you a question? Of course. Do you have a good heart? My answer <laughs> for a long time would be, I don't know or I doubt it. But now I do have confidence that I do. And when I'm not behaving well, it's because the goodness is obscured. Yes. So you're good. So thank you. So we don't have to downplay the good heartedness of humans because it sounds corny or Walt Disney-ish, you know, which I get that. Believe me, I spent a lot of time in New York and New York's tough. New York's a no bullshit city. And it was great that way. I mean, there were so many good-hearted people in New York, and there were so many people who could be tough, and the good-heartedness were in the same people who were also tough at times, because there's no bullshit, right? It's like, let's get real. So you said something earlier that I had made a note to come back to, which is that practicing right action all day long is your idea of fun. And I'm playing skeptical here because I actually, I think I understand what you're saying, but I can imagine somebody hearing that and saying, well, God, I'm going to try to, you know, be on my dharma or my mindfulness or my ethical game 24-7. That sounds exhausting. It sounds like a bit of an inner nanny state. How is that fun? It's fun because if you really practice 24-7, the practice of both speech and action and livelihood comes out of being present 
And where else are you going to be except present? You want to be somewhere else where you aren't? You can want to be somewhere else, but you can be aware of wanting to be somewhere else, which is different than believing that somewhere else is better than this moment, because I can assure you, this is the only moment there is. This is the whole show right now. And I've had a long past. I hope to have some more future. But this is the only moment there is, really. And so where else would we want to be? And what does it mean to be in harmony with what's true now? So to bring this full circle, these ethical guidelines are not, you know, things to be acted out in a rote manner. They're designed to get you into right now, into a spontaneous engagement with life. And that's a better way to live because otherwise you're stuck in the past or the present, which don't exist. Hallelujah. Totally. Yeah. Which don't exist. Or they exist in our memory or our fantasy. But our memory and fantasy is still right here in this moment. Right. Okay, so let's talk about right livelihood. What is right livelihood and why should we take it seriously? Oh, again, it's the same principles really woven through all of these, which is about what brings harmony, right? What is livelihood that brings us in alignment with the Dharma, with what's freeing, with the truth? Again, it's very simple. This is very basic stuff, right? About don't steal or don't sell things that, don't belong to you? Or how can you function in your work in a way that brings more harmony to the world? That's how I would define rent livelihood. And so there's a kind of letting go of the difficult and being truthful in the moment in our work, whatever we do, whatever it might be. And work is difficult. Whatever it is, even Dharma teaching, it's work. People think, oh, you're a teacher and you're up front and you know everything and you've been enlightened and all this stuff. And some of that is true and some of that is just projection. And how to work with the projection is something about right livelihood, not to take it in as if it's the whole truth and that you aren't just a human being who's still learning and waking up and trying to be real in my work in giving talks. And of course, I do a lot of interactive interviewing people or guiding people about their practice. And it's a beautiful, alive practice. And teaching is such a great practice and a privileged practice, really, because I get to talk about the Dharma, which means I get to learn more about it. But I'm always so grateful to people who are good at what they're doing and do it in a way that's helpful for me personally. Mostly it's about technology. I'm technologically disadvantaged. And when people are helpful and kind and know what they're doing, I'm like bowing to them. I'm so grateful. And so that's what our livelihood offers to the world, whether we know it or not. When you're doing your job well and you're doing it and it's serving people in whatever way, whatever it might be, a waitress or a waiter or whether you're a cook in a restaurant or whether you're the maitre d' in the restaurant, whatever it might be, there's something good you can give to the world with your heartfulness. And it doesn't have to be Tinkerbell heartfulness. It's adult heartfulness, which is another piece to keep unweaving that slightly cynical view about heartfulness, because it's really about adult heartfulness, a heartfulness that's based in maturity. So let me restate some of this to you, and please tell me if I'm getting it close to right. Right livelihood, we can understand this in a pretty technical way. The Buddha, I think, was quite explicit about, you know, you shouldn't make a living from killing or selling intoxicants that lead to heedlessness. I'm being a little legalistic about those words there because some might consider plant medicine to be an intoxicant, but I would argue that that's not an intoxicant that leads to heedlessness or does harm, that it's a medicine. Don't sell things that are stolen. There are some technical understandings of right livelihood, which you touched on. But then there's a holistic understanding, which is, how are you doing what you do? Yes, beautiful. You know, and that's the part that I'm pushing, really. How are you doing what you do? 
again, this is why right action is part of everything, because you're acting in whatever way that your livelihood is asking you to act. What does it take for us to function harmoniously together? And, you know, I always like to tell people when I appreciate them. So I live in San Francisco. There's an old army base in the northern part of the city, right by Golden Gate Bridge, called the Presidio. And it was a a military base. And they keep fixing it up and keeping the buildings going because it was built, you know, somewhere, especially around World War II, which is like 70 years ago now, something like that. And they keep fixing the buildings. And I'm always so grateful to these people who are repairing these old buildings which serve to function for all kinds of good nonprofit organizations and even some for-profit organizations. But they're good buildings that keep the beauty of San Francisco as it is instead of upgrading everything, you know. And so just yesterday I was there and I thanked the guy and he was so happy to get thanked. But I'm really happy he's doing what he's doing. He's taking out one slat and putting in another, and it's beautiful. So I'm continuing with the good-heartedness of what people do and that they often don't recognize it. Coming up, Eugene talks about the difference between being present and presence. And he talks about what has kept him devoted to the Eightfold Path for so many years. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter, and you need that kitty litter to do the job, which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control so your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs, and it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. They showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&Ms, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. In terms of how we do what we do, we've talked about the benefit of being present, but as I understand it, you make a distinction between being present and presence. (laughs) I do make that distinction. That's a very subtle distinction for a lot of people. It's one of the things that mindfulness of the body while talking and listening will start to reveal is the presence of mindfulness. And the presence means it's bigger than the usual way we think about just being aware of something. It means saturating our consciousness with what we're aware of. So we know what we're aware of by becoming what we're aware of. And there's a presence that's bigger than the individual self-ego identity. And that's what I mean by presence when I say presence. And it's pointing to what's talked about in Buddhism as a not-self experience or anatta. 
And uh, it's an experience people have that they often don't recognize it. And often what they do recognize is sometimes they're in nature and they feel like it's a beautiful night and the moon just came up and the stars are, you know, all over the place and you're out in the wilderness somewhere, not even the wilderness, in the Presidio by the Golden Gate Bridge. And people will say, oh yeah, I felt like I was one with everything. That's presence. People don't recognize to pay attention to the presence that is one with everything. They're still making it an object they're aware of, which is all good. But then there's one other step you can take is just relax into that which is one with everything, and you'll start to get a taste of presence. So if we're in a moment in nature where we're experiencing some awe, where the self starts to feel smaller. It's great to notice it, but there's a way to relax into the experience that you would describe as presence. Uh Yes, right. As we uh, veer toward the end of our time together, is there a question that I should have asked you but did not ask you? That's a good question. Uh, you know, maybe here's one response is given that you've been practicing for 40 years and done a lot of practice and you've been very devoted to the Eightfold Path, what keeps you going with the Eightfold Path? Well, that's good. What's the answer? The answer I learned from a number of different teachers and from my own experience is it's not over. There's more to wake up. And that goes all the way. There's so much to learn. There's so much that's beautiful about being human and having consciousness and about freedom. Freedom is not, oh, you get there and you're done. Freedom is you get there and there's more freedom possible or there's more understanding or there's more awakening that's possible. And a couple teachers who have supported me, I'll say their name, Saira Utejaniya, who really is so much about continued learning, continued discovery, continued understanding. And of course, my diamond approach teacher, Hamid Ali, who knows a tremendous amount. And it's always more, there's always more that he's learning. And really, so many other good teachers that I've met. Suzuki Roshi is the other person. I wish you could get him on your show. But uh, he's gone now. But he was always learning more. He was always waking up more. And it was beautiful. If you want a great book from Suzuki Roshi, Send Mind, Beginning Mind. Every few years I read that book and I always feel like, oh my God, I'm just getting to what he understood. That's what keeps happening. Because the understanding keeps deepening. And that's why the path and practice is so beautiful, in my opinion, and and my experience. I take both of those things very seriously. And I think there are many things many people will take away from this conversation. But the last thing that you said is particularly poignant and powerful for me, which is that I've been meditating for a little bit of time. You've been meditating for quite a bit longer. And there's still more to learn. There's still more to do. There's still more to get out of it. That's motivating. That's my kind of fun. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Are there any resources you've put out into the world that people can access if they want to learn more from you after having listened to this conversation? They can always go to Dharma Seed and I have, uh, you know, a bunch of talks on Dharma Seed people can listen to. They could always join my Sunday evening class at San Francisco Insight, six o'clock Pacific time. And I teach retreats. I love to teach live Uh, Please come join us. I teach every year at Spirit Rock and come see what happens. We'll put links to all of those resources that Eugene mentioned in the show notes. Go check it out. Go check him out. But for now, Eugene, great to meet you. And thank you so much for your time. Good to meet you. Thank you. Appreciate what you're doing. Keep putting the Dharma out in any way, everywhere. Thanks again to Eugene. 
Thanks as well to everybody who works on this show. 10% Happier is produced by DJ Kashmir, Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davey, Lauren Smith, and Tara Anderson. Our supervising producer is Marissa Schneiderman, and Kimmy Regler is our managing producer. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio. And Nick Thorburn of the great band Islands wrote our theme. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember remix and reimagine for the kids in your life today join me dj and my trusty turntable baby scratch as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast once upon a beat wondry and tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet it's once upon a beat follow once upon a beat on the wondry app or wherever you get your podcast you can listen to once upon a beat early and ad free right now by joining wondry plus in the wondry app or wondry kids plus in apple Podcasts. once upon a beat